Well, again, good morning and welcome to Santa Barbara Community Church. It is good to be together. As you already heard, my name is Benji and I serve as one of the pastors here. And if you are new, I want you to know it is our habit every year to spend the first three Sundays of each year in a bit of special focus. And so two weeks ago, Merrill Dick was with us and, and he helped us ponder again the glory of God as the central theme of the universe and the true joy of all people. We got to just delight in the story of his family bringing the gospel to a tribal people who are now our brothers and sisters in Christ. It was, it was marvelous. Last week, Mike led us in thinking about the sanctity and value of life, and, and that was equally wonderful. Well, today, as we do each year on MLK Weekend, we want to consider the dynamic interplay of ethnic unity and the gospel, and chances are you have thoughts on that. I've, I've done this long enough to know. I want to acknowledge that in this room this morning, there are a wide variety of perspectives on topics surrounding race and ethnic justice and the role that the church should or sometimes even can play in addressing social realities. I spent part of this week reading through the findings of a study that was published in 2021 by the Barna Group. And they surveyed attitudes about race, justice, and the gospel. And as you might suspect, that revealed a spectrum. A spectrum of opinions, a spectrum of emotions, and perceived solutions. And that spectrum was just as broad among practicing Christians as well. Now, like each of you, I also have my own thoughts and perspectives and opinions. But nobody came here this morning eager to hear my opinions. I recognize that. We each came here because we are in need of hearing from God, especially on difficult topics that have the power to divide. So I want you to know what my hope is for the next number of minutes. My goal is to take us back into the scriptures to examine God's heart for his church when it comes to the delicate and fraught topics of race and ethnicity and gospel unity. But before we open the scriptures, I want to talk about this guy. So this is Jose Canseco. Jose Canseco um, was an outfielder for the Oakland A's in the late 80s, early 90s, and I recently finished a biography of Ricky Henderson, who was a teammate of Canseco's during that time, and it included a story that I think was really interesting in revealing what Jose Canseco thought was central and what was peripheral. In 1988 through 1990, the A's played in the World Series each year. Now, during the playoffs in 1990, Jose Canseco's teammates overheard him in the training room complaining to one of the trainers that because they had been in the World Series each of those years, he had had to play a lot of extra games and his body was tired. As you might imagine, his teammates did not receive that complaining very well because for many of them, reaching the World Series, well, that was central to their ambition. That was why they played the game. But it became pretty clear pretty quickly that that was not the case. Jose Canseco thought playing in the World Series, going through the playoffs, well, that was peripheral. Those were optional elements to playing baseball. Well, in his book, How to Heal Our Racial Divide, Pastor Derwin Gray says this, I contend that racial reconciliation in Christ is not peripheral to the gospel, an optional nice-to-have or a fad issue, but central to Christ's mission and God's plan. God has always promised a multicolored, multi-ethnic family to Abraham, and that family was given to him in Christ Jesus. 
Now, I know that that sounds to some of us like a big claim, but I believe that the scriptures back up what Pastor Derwin has to say here and give us reason to see that wherever it is demographically possible, a multi-ethnic community is a central feature of churches that are shaped by the gospel. A central enough feature that the earliest churches fought for it, and a central enough feature that we should be willing to do the same today. So if you have your Bible, would you please open it to the book of Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at a number of different passages of scripture today, but Ephesians 3 will be our central text. As you turn a little background on the setting of the letter written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians in the ancient city of Ephesus. Ephesus was a significant city in the time of Paul. It was a Roman provincial capital. It was an economic center. It would have been religiously pluralistic, and it would have been a place of noticeable diversity. But as we read in Ephesians chapter 3, we will start to see a story emerge of something beyond diversity alone. We're going to remain seated today because we're going to work through this chapter in sections. So I hope you're in Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to begin reading in verse 1. Paul writes this, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. We're going to stop there for now, but I think we've seen enough to know that Paul seems pretty fascinated with this term mystery, right? Did you notice it came up a lot? Now, I don't know what comes to mind for you when you hear the term mystery, whether it's Nancy Drew or the Hardy Boys, Columbo or Scooby-Doo, Sherlock Holmes or Enola Holmes. I don't know. But the important thing is not what comes to mind for us when we hear the term mystery, but what would have come to mind for the original readers in first century Ephesus? And spoiler, it wasn't some meddlesome teens and a dog in the mystery machine. So the Greek translation of the Old Testament is known as the Septuagint. And the Greek term translated here as mystery appears in the Septuagint, specifically in Daniel chapter 2. So in Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar, he's had a troubling dream. And he is so unsettled by it that he calls all of his astrologers and his advisors together and says, I have a task for you. First of all, tell me what my dream was, and then tell me what it means. And if you don't, I will put you to death. That is not kind leadership, but that's what he does. And they understandably balk at that task, and they say, no one can do that. Because those sorts of things belong to the gods alone, and they don't walk among humans. So the king responds with a vengeful vendetta, and he's so enraged that he says, gather up all of the wise men in all of Babylon, and that includes Daniel, 
Well, when Daniel hears about this, he asks, what, what has so enraged the king? And then he petitions the king, saying, allow me to interpret the dream. And in the verses that follow, we find the term mystery. So Daniel 2, 17 to 19. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. And a little later, the king asked Daniel, who also called Belteshazzar, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Now, I could keep going because these aren't even all of the uses of the term mystery in Daniel 2, but I'm sure you're starting to see the thread. In the scriptures, this term mystery is most often used for something that cannot be understood by regular human effort, but it must be revealed from the realm of the divine. So in Ephesians 3, Paul takes on Daniel's prophetic mantle, and he claims that the mystery that was unsearchable by human wisdom and through human means, well, it has now been made known by God to him, along with the other apostles and prophets. Friends, this is no small claim. And I imagine that the church in Ephesus would have been on the figurative edge of their figurative seats, waiting to hear more about what is this mystery that has been revealed from heaven, Paul? Well, he doesn't keep them or us in suspense very long. Would you look again at verse 6? This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. This is a picture of complete unity. There is nothing second class here. He says, heirs together, members together, sharers together. And I want you, if you're able, to try to imagine what it would be like to be a Gentile hearer of this message, hearing that the true and living God of Israel actually invites you into his family on equal footing with anyone else. This is radically transformational. And with these radically transformational and unifying phrases, Paul pushes his readers to move beyond diversity alone in order to live in true community. The difference is something that I saw growing up in Stockton, California. So as recently as 2018, the U.S. News and World Report analyzed the most current census data and named Stockton the most racially diverse large city in America. It's nice to win something every once in a while. The context in which I lived the first 22 years of my life was multilingual, multi-ethnic, multicultural. After Christmas, my family and I just spent a little bit of time in Stockton, and I was reminded again of the ethnic diversity of my hometown. And yet, as diverse as Stockton was and is, growing up, I didn't experience a lot of spaces marked by multi-ethnic community. So while I went to school and played sports and even worked at the Sizzler on Hammer Lane with those whose ethnic heritages and backgrounds were very different than mine, I didn't live in a world that featured a lot of ethnic unity, a lot of sharing together, members together of one 
family. And I get it. Crossing barriers is difficult work. It's typically easier for most of us to just hang out with those whose experience of the world maps most closely to our own. And yet, I want to submit this morning that Paul reminds us in Ephesians 3 that the path of least resistance that is so commonly on display in our social spaces, it's actually antithetical both to the example of Jesus and the gospel of Jesus. Think about it. If you are a part of the family of God by faith in Jesus Christ, that is true because you live under the lordship of one who crossed barriers unimaginable in order to create a ridiculously unlikely family. And importantly, the church that he established with his blood has always been charged with a multicultural mission. Go and make disciples of all nations. And so Chris Wright, writing in his book, The Mission of God, says, and this says Paul, this dynamic narrative of God's saving purpose for all nations through Abraham is the heart of the gospel as announced by the scriptures. And yet notice that Paul's not willing to settle for diversity alone when diversity is just the prerequisite for something even more compelling. Fam, we have to get our minds around this. Representation is critical But the church is actually called beyond representation to relationship. Paul insists that God has always been intent to gather all peoples into one new people, one unified body called the church, in which ethnic divisions give way to the unity of family. And because I, like you, have lived a real life in a real world marked by real divisions and real conflicts, this sounds real hard. Which is why my hesitant heart, and maybe yours, needs to enter even more deeply into the next two verses, in which we're reminded of God's commitment to his purposes. Would you look at verse 10? His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In verse 10, Paul insists that a unified church uniquely showcases the wisdom of God. Simply put, no human is going to come up with something as aspirational and hard-fought as the church that lives in true community born from the difficulty of difference. Only the creator could dream up something that audacious. Lynn Kohick, in her commentary on Ephesians, she wisely reminds us of the shadow side of being involved in something this remarkable, and she says this, Unfortunately, at times, the church has assumed a triumphal posture based on a misapprehension that it possesses such power and wisdom in itself. When Paul penned this epistle, however, the followers of Jesus were a small group with no political prestige or social clout. Indeed, Paul himself writes this while in chains. Acknowledging the wisdom of God in and through the church should lead the church not to a posture of arrogance, but to one of humility. I think she's right. As she points out, even the truly unified multi-ethnic church is still called the humility. But did you notice in the passage, there's a note of something a little bit different. There is a note of boasting. Because Paul says God alone can boast in the truly unified, multi-ethnic church. Now, if you were here last week, you may recall that Mike referenced Revelation 12 and 13 in his teaching. 
Those chapters picture a, the cosmos as locked in battle between the forces of the kingdom of God and the forces of God's enemy, Satan, who is intent on leading the world astray. So you might ask, well, what does that have to do with Ephesians 3? Well, it's appropriate that we're in this on an NFL playoff weekend because if you watch any football this weekend, you will see extravagant boasting for the most minor acts of athletic competence. (laughs) Well, Paul insists that the multi-ethnic global church is a decisive victory in the battle taking place in the cosmos, and it's one that gives God massive cosmic swagger. In a world marked by ethnic distance and mistrust and division, God puts his unified church on display to the forces of darkness. And he celebrates even more than a linebacker who happens to take down a running back. He puts the church on display to the heavens and says, look at that. So Timothy Gombus, in his book, The Drama of Ephesians, he says this, the powers have ordered the present evil age in such a way as to exacerbate the divisions within humanity. God confounds them by creating in Christ one unified, multiracial body consisting of formerly divided groups of people. He says, to the heavenly realms. You think division is normal? Check out my church. How do you like them apples? And you'll notice, too, that Paul insists that such a unified body is actually God's eternal purpose. This is not something he thought up later. This is not a later strategic add-on. From the jump, God has dreamed of a multi-ethnic global family. He promised one to Abraham. In Genesis 12, the Lord had said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And what he promised to Abraham we get to celebrate in Revelation. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light. And the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. This is God's eternal purpose. It's one that we see in Genesis 12. It's one that we see celebrated in Revelation 21. The global, multi-ethnic church is central to the heart of God, not peripheral. And that vision of heaven, it's ours to live out now. To display the glory and wisdom of God on earth as it already is celebrated throughout the heavenly realms. Now, if the call to ethnic unity in the body of Christ sounds like a tall order, well, there's good news to come in verses 14 through 19. We're reminded here that God asks what he will and then wills what he asks. Would you look at them with me? Beginning in verse 14. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide 
and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. For the one who longs to live out God's longing, his dream, well, there awaits a reserve of divine power to love well. Notice how often those two terms, love and power, come up in these verses. Verse 16, he will strengthen you with power through his spirit. Verse 17, rooted and established in love. Verse 18, that you may have power. Verse 18, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Verse 19, to know this love. Those who know love live out of love. And while undoubtedly each of us has room to grow in our love for others, this is likely especially so for those of us who experience life as a part of the majority culture. Because when most things in your life are geared toward your life experience, it may not be as easy to view your neighbors through the lens of sacrificial love. So like Paul, we must fall to our knees and beg God for power from the Spirit to allow us to see more clearly and allow us to love more readily our neighbors from different racial or ethnic backgrounds. The power of God for the love of others is the only way that God's audacious eternal purpose of a unified, multi-ethnic family declaring his praise will ever come to fruition. And if it sounds costly, then consider that we are simply walking in the way of Jesus who said greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. This is the calling on each of our lives that will allow us to move toward God's eternal purpose of a multi-ethnic church declaring his praises to the shock of the kingdom of darkness, to lay down our lives in love. Now, I know that the application, love others, may feel like a somewhat thin way to end a sermon on as difficult a problem as racial and ethnic division, but I wonder if that speaks more to the ways that we misunderstand the radically unifying power of truly biblical and sacrificial love. I wonder if when we hear that, we think that's a low bar, when in fact... That's the highest bar we can have. I already referenced this book, but I want to read you a selection from How to Heal Our Racial Divide by Pastor Derwin Gray. And he is a pastor in the Charlotte area, and um, he is a black man, and he is married to a white woman, and they intentionally planted a multi-ethnic church. And this book details some of the challenges, some of the opportunities, and some of the ways that they've beautifully seen God move. But he talks a little bit about the calling of love, and I want you to hear some of what he has to say. In a recent conversation with a white brother who said he was a Christian, I asked him how he felt about black people. He said, I do not have a problem with them. I asked him to show in scripture where Jesus says, love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and do not have a problem with your neighbor. (laughs) He goes on, King Jesus calls us as his people to love God with the totality of our being and to love our neighbors the way we love ourselves. If I do not love you as I love myself, I am not going to advocate on your behalf. If I do not love you as I love myself, I am not going to be concerned about your pain. If I do not love you as I love myself, I am not going to seek justice when the noose of injustice is suffocating you. 
I've had similar conversations with black and Latino brothers in Christ who have equally prejudiced attitudes toward other ethnicities. Prejudice is not a one-way street. Racism and prejudice are cancers that affect all ethnic groups. Learning to love each other, to really love each other as God has commanded and as God has empowered us, takes an act of courageous faith to tell the truth, to offer grace, to extend kindness, and to be the change you want to see in the world. When you love someone, you sacrifice on their behalf. When you love someone, their pain is your pain. When you love someone, the injustice they experience matters to you. When you love someone, there is no us versus them. There is only us in Christ. When you love someone, you love them the way you love yourself. Those who love their brothers and sisters in Christ of a different ethnicity, the way they love themselves, are on their way to healing the racial divide. Love heals the hurt. Love undoes injustice. Love is the bridge that connects the disconnected. Love takes a sledgehammer of grace and breaks down the barriers that divide us. I think he is onto something. I think when we consider the picture of love we are given in the scriptures, the call to love our neighbors as ourselves starts to take on a very particular shape. Now, I don't know what that might look like for you in your own life, and I don't know if what you've heard today strikes your heart, but I believe that the Holy Spirit wants to say something to you through his word here this morning. And so I want to give us a moment of silence to reflect on the call to reflect on the call to love others well, to love others sacrificially, to love others toward a unity, an uncommon unity in the church that can only speak of the audacious work of God. And so let's take a moment in silence and ask the Spirit what he wants to reveal to us. I imagine that most of us spent the last few moments in silence thinking about how we might lay down our lives for others. And in doing so, we were thinking metaphorically, but the model for our lives of sacrificial love is the one who literally laid down his life. In verse 11, Paul reminds us that God's eternal purpose is accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. The eternal God who bridged the unpassable gap between himself and humanity when he took on flesh to identify with us, who took up our infirmities, who bore the punishment for our sin and literally laid down his life for his friends so that we might become so much more than friends and become family together with God as our shared father. And if that's your story, you are invited to dramatically retell it at a meal that we take week by week that serves as a reminder of the path and the price of our redemption. So we're going to take bread and remember that Jesus allowed his body to be pierced. And we're going to dip it in wine and remind ourselves that Jesus allowed his blood to be shed to create a unified family for God. A family that declares God's wisdom and his glory and his majesty and his power on earth 
and in heaven. So if that's your story, come. Come, all you who belong to the multi-ethnic, multilingual, multicultural family that God has always dreamed of. Come declare the mystery of God's redeeming grace. We'll have prayer teams on either side ready to pray with you about anything at all. Come to the table.